welcome to Wild Places. I'm your host, Brad Clement. This podcast is presented by Pangee Foundation, saving snow leopards, helping communities. I'm ready. Let's do this thing. All right. Doug Stanley joins us today. Doug, yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, and we, we've talked a little bit in the past about, yeah, you were the executive producer of Deadliest Catchwood. I, I want to say that that has to be one of the most successful series for Discovery Channel or maybe in all of TV. It's uh, It's been incredible. You know, I, I have to say, though, that I was a producer of Deadliest Catch, not the executive producer. The producer emeritus this guy named Tom Beers, you know, who's okay. also responsible for Ice Road Truckers and Black Gold and Axemen and Storage Wars and a bunch of other uh, decent, great shows, came from the Cousteau background. So the nice thing about that guy is he recognized who I was when he first met me, you know. But, yeah, uh, yeah, and that goes back to what I love, and there's a common bond between people who guide and, and choose guiding as a, as a lifestyle. And you were a river guide for many, many years. How did that, what was that process? How did you start, you know, what was it about water and about rivers as a kid or whenever you discovered this and how did you become a guide? Well, I was on a family reunion vacation in Colorado, in the state of Colorado, and we ran as a family. We went on a commercial river trip on the Grays section of the Colorado River. And uh, I tell you, you know, for, there was something about it. You know, I can remember to this day the excitement of just simply standing at the put in and seeing that moving water sheeting downstream and, you know, following that water with my eyes, you know, to seeing where it disappears around the corner and that mystery of, you know, what's below. It gripped me, but it was also that my family had an amazing time on this trip. We just really all had an amazing time. My dad actually thought, he was he was planning on leaving the corporate world. He thought that he would launch a whitewater company, and that's what we do as a family. We had that much fun, but in fact, my dad never did launch that company. But uh, I had it pictured in my mind that I would be a river guide, just like those really cool twenty-one year olds or something that were guiding us on that trip. You know, when I was fourteen, and so at eighteen years old, I I went to whitewater guide school. That was back when you know my mom had to find the ad for it in the paper and cut it out you know right, and right. I went to whitewater guide school in 1981 and you know became a river guide and i'll tell you um brad you might not know this but i was the best river guide in the whole world at 18 years old you know oh yeah 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 and so as you know time went on you know the next season uh you know the the was the the season of 82, 83 in the Sierras, we had 896 inches of snowfall. It was like 74 feet of snow fell that year at Sugar Bowl and on the ridges that, uh, you know, behind, you know, the big mountains in Tahoe that, that feed all the watersheds near my home in Auburn, California. But uh, on that year, you know, the rivers really pumped and they pumped in a spectacular fashion where it was a really even release. So the, the high water lasted for a very long time, like into July. And boy, did I learn a lot, but that was also the end of the end of that particular season. I went to Grand Canyon and by this time I wasn't just claiming, you know, the best guide in the whole world status, man. I was, you know, I was 19 years old and, you know, hell bent on exploring all the rivers of the world, blah, blah, blah. And I went down to Grand Canyon um, on a trip where I got to row a baggage boat and, you know, showed up in my 
OP shorts and my uh, um, van shoes and, you know, got on the river and these older guides, you know, they're all in their fifties. And, you know, these guys are like PhDs in geology and geomorphology and stuff like that. And, you know, the river just stomped me, you know, the first two rapids shocked me and I was rowing a 2000 pound boat and they, they just did not move like a little California boat, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I was so far off my mark that, you know, it's not nine feet, it was more like 90 feet each time. And I was really understanding that, that, you know, the power of this river is way beyond me. And so uh, one of the guides there, Tony um, Adams, took me under his wing and basically taught me to row, you know, taught me to use the river's force and how to, you know, capture extra energy as you're dropping the bass back of a wave at the right moment, you can get twice the power you can get, you know, anywhere else. And so I started learning to row those 2000 pound boats. And, you know, I came home and I was certain that there was nothing but that really worth doing. And so, you know, my life was dedicated to California rivers in the spring, exploration of rivers during the spring times in California. And then I guided Grand Canyon for 10 seasons, you know, did uh, about over 11,000 miles of that creek down there and, you know, lived 50 months of my life on the shores and bottom of Grand Canyon. And it's a place that's a great home to me. But being a Grand Canyon guide also allowed a lot of opportunities. So that allowed me to be parts of expeditions that went into, you know, Central America and Alaska and Chile and all over, you know, all over the place. And, and um, I, it's just been a big thing in my heart. And I've been very fortunate to have been there during a change in the equipment. You know, when I began, you know, people rode with one leg out of the boat and it was a bucket boat, which meant that every bit of water that came over the gunnels and the boat stayed there and we had to bail it out. But I was there when equipment shifted and the floors became inflatable and thick and you could lace them in instead of gluing them in. So the water just goes right through the floors. And so self-bailing boats just allowed so much more because you could actually still navigate your boat at the bottom of the long rapids. Prior to that, we were just, you know, like throwing five 55-gallon drums of water in a boat and trying to steer it and, you know, move it or catch the eddy at the bottom, which is a terrifying experience when you just can have no, you're so far out of control, you can't even stop between. But during that time, there was a lot of exploration going on, both internationally and domestically, and there was a lot of rivers that still hadn't been rafted or run. And so during those times in, for example, Northwestern California, Six Rivers National Wilderness, the Marble Mountains, the Trinity Alps, you know, these areas are full of these incredible jewels of California rivers. And, uh, you know, we were able to, to get first tracks on a lot of them, I mean, you know, get in when there's still snow on the ground. So there's still water because there's no dam to control that water. And, and so, you know, we'd come in in trucks with chainsaws and, you know, put chains on four wheel drive trucks and haul these logs and things that had fallen across these roads and do whatever we could do to penetrate to get furthest we could get. And so then also, it was pure, pure exploration. I mean, you guys were, were going into the unknown. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we were going in um, to rivers like that. And I, you know, the, the process really is to go in and, and, study maps you know before we went in we would dissect the maps and try and figure out the gradient of the riverbed which is kind of 
possible because the, the topographic lines cross the river. So we dissect the maps, figure out where our steep parts, you know, try and imagine what's down there. And then off we'd go. But you know, there was probably about four groups in California that were really doing this. We were pushing the boundaries of whitewater rafting and pushing into these rivers. And some of those rivers became the staples, you know, are today's well-known class five runs. And so, you know, among uh, other enjoyable things in my life, you know, to have named some of the rapids in California and yeah. been part of the exploration of rivers like Giant Gap and Generation Gap and North Trinity and a whole, whole host of others. It's really, a, you know, I'm a river man at the root. There's no question about it. As a matter of fact, the most recent trip I guided was yesterday. Really? So, yeah, we were on the river yesterday. I took my girlfriend Charlene and my son's down and we went and, you know, actually did two days of river running. Yeah. That's fantastic. So, so at age 18, 19, you are the world's best river guide. Um, and, and then there, there's that with, with whatever discipline of guiding, there's that, you know, freshman year, sophomore year, uh, you graduate, uh, when you were in your twenties, did you enjoy the humility that you were learning or, or were you impatient and wanting to get on to bigger, better things? And, and yeah, I think there's a process like you just guided yesterday. I'm still guiding 20 years later in the, in the big mountain ranges. And I feel like more and more, I'm a student of my, uh, profession. And, and so, you know, how did that progress for you as, as you entered your twenties, thirties, forties? Well, uh, interesting thing here is that, you know, it's kind of captured in uh, poetry, uh, my beginning and my end. You know, there is uh, the young river guide telling tales of charging the biggest rapids and the biggest, you know, going on the greatest adventures and gaining, you know, tales to tell during the cold winter's snow. You know, though there was that era, but as time went on, especially in the leadership end, you know, as leading expeditions, and you know, that's really quite an art, you know, when you have people coming from all over different wants, different needs, different personalities, and almost all of our passengers, you know, are paying a fairly high dollar. And so they're all kind of leaders in themselves in their world out there and mm -hmm. getting them to shake that yoke is often one of our challenges. But, you know, for me, it, it became that instead of wanting to run the biggest rapid and take the biggest hit, you know, I started getting off on the most subtle moves of in the river. And sometimes that's just crossing from an eddy back into the current. But when you're rowing a 2000 pound boat, you know, that's got gear on it and, and you know, cast iron cookware and, you know, 27 cases of beer, you know, it's, that thing is a beast. And so just making these super subtle moves and feeling the slip of the water, like a surfboard would, you know, underneath it and being just, just that little glistening moment or hitting a wave in such a way where it tosses the spray up into the air and the sun's caught behind it, just lights it all up like jewels. There's little moments like that, that really, really define my spiritual moments in that realm. And I'm also quite a river swimmer, mm -hmm. you know, um, as we owned a whitewater, my partner, Roger Lee and I owned a whitewater guide school for 23 years. We taught California river guides just in the spring, you know, we do a couple trips, we do a regular school and then an advanced guide school, which was really just our cover for getting people to pay us so we could make a budget so we could go out and do another first descent expedition, you know? Um, 
but during that, you know, um, during that time, you know, I was, was changing spiritually too, you know, just really getting the feel for not just the adventure, but for the surroundings, you know, what the surroundings the nature, provided. The, whatever it is, whatever captured you, it was kind of the outdoors, the, the, the flow of nature that really touched you. Yeah. And it's kind of, um, I enjoyed the tribal aspect of it. I enjoy, you know, it's like getting back to humanity. And, you know, think about, you know, what is most important to us. And really you can find it in the cave. You know, you can get right back in the cave when we're all traveling as a nomadic group, you know, working towards the survival of our genetic line all the time together. You know, there's just a lot to those moments where people are really touching each other. And a lot of that, um, the world has fallen away. You know, bottom of Grand Canyon, you couldn't buy something with money if you tried. Right. You know, a, cho- a chocolate bar might help you, but, um, you know, yeah. And that sucks when somebody ransoms your shoe for chocolate and you don't have any. So you got one shoe for four days in Grand Canyon. They think it's funny. <laughs> the simple things, the simple things. Yeah. <laughs> so, so how did you end up? You know, was it your idea for Deadliest Catch? Uh, how did you end up there? And how did you choose Dutch Harbor and the, these guys who are rough and amazing and just like so Alaskan to the core? You know, it's a, it's a, it's a really a great story because in the end, it came down to vision. And, you know, and that vision was Tom Beers. And he had done a film on Alaska where he, it was called Wild Alaska. And it was segments showing what men really do in Alaska for work. And he ended up with the crab fishing fleet out of Dutch Harbor and uh, ended up on this boat and had spent just like four days or something shooting um, some footage that he came back with. And the footage was substantial. So he sent, uh, he, he tried to sell a show to Discovery Channel based on the crab fisherman. And at that time, he had Monster House, Monster Garage, plastic surgery before and after. But, you know, coming from the Cousteau and adventure side, you know, he brought catch to Deadliest, uh, you know, Deadliest Catch to Discovery Channel. And they said, hmm, I don't think so. You know, uh, who's going to want to watch crab fishermen? And so Tom believed in it and his vision was sufficient enough to propel him to spend, you know, 300 grand and send a small handful of us to Dutch Harbor. There were seven of us total that went up there that first year and went out on three different vessels. And it wasn't deadliest catch. It was called America's deadliest season. And because Tom self-invested in it and because he had a line at Discovery Channel, they licensed it for the premier broadcast. And at that time, you know, there everything, and still to this day, everything's measured. So Discovery Channel has always, um, when they fund their own shows, they vest in them. That show's important to them. They might actually spend more money in promoting that show than they spend on the show itself. So anything that plays without that kind of promo is called cold. And so what happened is Deadliest Catch, or uh, America's Deadliest Season, played cold on the discovery channel and shattered all of their premier records. Wow. And so that discovery said, wow, that's really, we really got something here. Maybe we should do the series. And that was when deadliest catch was born. The next year we went out on um, five boats, 
and filmed Deadliest Catch the first year. And your brother was with you, is that correct? Your brother filmed? Yeah, my brother did. Yeah, my brother, as a matter of fact, uh, people call him Deadliest Todd. He is the only person to have to still be there. That was at the beginning root of the show. And yeah, my brother, you know, a lot of his stories are people that have seen the show. You know, when Captain Phil Harris passed away, that was my brother. And when, um, you know, boats went down or sank or things like that, you know, my brother was there a lot as I was in a lot of the, the boats going down. And so, you know, I did seven winters in a row in the vast Bering Sea, you know, and uh, at that period of my life, I'm seven years older than my brother. At that period of my life, I decided that I would leave Catch and go off and do other shows. Like I have the designs on this Everest show we're talking about now, Brad, you and I. And uh, the overall idea is basically that my brother stuck it out for what's now probably in his life. It's 18 years because he did the pilot season two. And it's unbelievable. I think he's won, I think he's up to 11 primetime Emmys now. Wow. Wow. What did it take? I'm assuming, imagining that gaining the trust of these crews. Again, these are the roughest waters in the world. And the guys that work there, they can make a ton of money. But at the core, they're, they're pretty rough themselves. Did you have to gain their trust you, over so many years of filming them? Did you become friends or was it always business? And how did that work? Well, first of all, you know, imagine locking yourself in an elevator for three months. You know, it's basically, even though the ship might be 150 feet long, that's what you're doing. You're living in a tin can and absolute obscurity on the edge of the earth. And there is no way to do that without having relationships, including personal, you know. And so what happened at first is, you know, they expected us to be these, you know, city boy type guys coming on their boats. But what happened was, you know, because I came in early and I was the director of photography and I was often hired with all of the camera teams, what I did is I recognized early that it's important that these people are expedition shooters they are you cannot have people that want to go home at 10 o'clock at night this is an endless amount of work and it's an expedition and it needs to be approached with that idea and so i trained a bunch of whitewater river guides Mm -hmm. so it's interesting is in northern california up here you know we have a whole pocket of river guides who with some of them yesterday you know they're doing things like right now they're doing things like deadliest cats life below zero naked and afraid and the list goes on and on and on. But, you know, there's this core group of river guides that all kind of began when I did a series of my own called Helen High Water, which was about our whitewater guide school. I was actually on the other side of the lens for that one. You, you sent me some footage from that at one point in our, in our uh, history of knowing each other. And it was, it was fantastic. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it was really, um, really kind of one of those passion projects that that was very difficult to accomplish you know for me that was the amount of the amount of money i put into that thing was incredible you know and uh but i i really enjoyed having captured the essence of what our whitewater school is like in in a reality format and the people that were involved in shooting that show and creating that show I mean, includes such notables as the international president of National Geographic, you know, Tim Pastor and Matt Renner, who's the national uh, 
president of National Geographic, who those two guys were the executive producers on Free Solo. You know, yeah. if you look at that movie Free Solo, you'll see Deadliest Catch in it, you know, the way they're building characters and everything. They had a lot, you know, with Jimmy Chin. There's a lot of work, I'm sure, that came in from the executive level on that as well. And um, I, uh, you know, it's it's really it's really just an honor to have worked with people like that and do things like they're doing and combining the river community and the television community and and seeing people grow. You know, there's been a lot of growth. There's been a lot of years and there's been a lot of crews. And fortunately, these crews that I, that I work with, you know, are often the people that go to the edge of the earth or want to. Mm-hmm. You know, last summer I did an expedition from the Arctic up in the, the Beaufort Sea. Um, we came down to uh, Montana, across all of Canada in Yamaha side-by-side vehicles. And, uh, you know, that it was as much of an expedition as anything I've done, even though we burned a lot of carbon-based fuels. It was uh, really quite a, quite a journey. And I learned that windshields and windows are good in mosquito country because when you're traveling 3,000 miles across the thickest mosquito country, you definitely want windshields. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. if you can just reach over and turn up your heater another notch anytime you want to, that's a good thing, you know. So in a way, the, these first experiences when you were a kid with your family on water, there's been this full circle of it's taken you, you know, your passion for the water which is a passion for wild places has brought you through all these journeys. And, and you've kind of, as you've gotten older, you've returned to the water. Yeah. I just have never left. You know, I spent uh, two months, I'm sorry, two weeks uh, last year in Portugal at Nazare, you know, where the home of the hundred foot surf break. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was there for two weeks living with the pro surfers and, you know, seeing their daily lives. And I think the whole time I was there, the wave was never less than 70 feet. It's got this incredible rock point that goes out into the middle of it with this 1500s little fort structure, uh, lighthouse thing. And, um, it's just, it's unparalleled in big wave anywhere, you know, that that you can just be out in the middle of the big waves the way this point allows you to do that just really wow. see what's going on in the world of big wave surfing and so in, in in the climbing world also brad you're talking about how my family's experience contributed in the climbing world that also was my the genesis as i was um, a kid um sitting on top of a rock at the mirror lake junction for the yosemite valley trams with my father when a group of climbers came out and they were jingling you know they had all their gear and everything was jingling and i heard this music and i wondered what it was i never heard before and i'm sitting on a big rock right up above my dad when i see the awe on my father's face as these men are turning and pointing towards the northwest face of half dome and I saw my father awed for the first time. And this was back in the days when, you know, when Robbins and Chouinard were up on the, you know, a cap a lot. There was a Life magazine picture of just their dot of their camp, uh, you know, in the face of Half Dome. And, and so my dad, like, cut these pictures out, put, you know, pictures up in the hallway. And so, you know, I knew I was destined to climb big walls, too. Mm-hmm. And, you know, most of those for me have been, you know, like, uh, love hate experiences, you know, 
there's nothing like being out of water in the desert for two days, not being able to make saliva and still striving to get to the summit. Right. Right. And the only thing that saved me was it was like 7,200 feet and it was spring and there was a snow patch still buried in this juniper tree on the top. And if it wasn't for that snow patch, man, I might've summited and just laid down flat and all the air went out, you know? So there, there's a joke among mountaineers, which I know is very different than desert climbing or, or big wall climbing, but the joke with mountaineers is, you know, we all have short memories. That's what, that that's the number one quality in being a decent mountaineer. Because, I mean, some of these experiences are painful and yet we, we thrive on it and we enjoy it. And I, I think a lot of it goes back to something you mentioned earlier. Each little discipline of exploration, adventure, whatever you may call it, uh, there are tribes and there are brotherhoods and sisterhoods of, of the utmost intimate, close relationships where you trust these people with your life. And I don't know anywhere else except for kind of extreme adventure, whether it's rivers, whether it's rafting, whether it's big wall climbing, big mountains really amazing personal relationships that you have with people. And, and so then these tribes most certainly do form. And, and that's, that's what I remember about expeditions. It's not, it's not necessarily a sunrise or, or the way the ice formed when we had to climb this hundred foot pitch. It's the friendships and the, those, those moments with people. Yeah. It's the connections, you know, you think about it, you know, in the Grand Canyon, you have, uh, it's a, it's a social, it's a tribe that's moving, you know, people pulling in. And when I was doing 12 day trips, for example, you know, it took till day eight till everybody's, uh, the world wore away from them and they became just a member of the tribe and the position they naturally fit, not the position they wanted, not the position that they felt they deserved, but the actual position. But there's another layer of that intimacy and that intimacy is between the guides themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I could tell you, you know, I've been on a, you know, when you've been on a river that, you know, you woke up in the morning and the water was 15 feet higher and then you still got to get to the end and you're in the canyon and, you know, the passengers are really, you know, they, they trust us. Mm-hmm. But the fact is the only reason we can be there is because the guides trust each other. And then the, our communication is almost like through the field, you know, it is, it's, just so distinct when it's that critical, how we're moving, how we're getting, where we're stopping, who's protecting who at any given moment, eyes on me, eyes on me, you know, and then something happens and, you know, you're coming up swimming in the middle of a rapid and you're pointing to one of your passengers that's going into the bad part of town over there and somebody's on him. And, you know, it's like, there's this magical intimacy in the highest level of adventure that is difficult to describe unless you've lived it at that level where it really is life and death and where you are holding responsibility that's beyond your own life. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they said so many years in the world of, of um, rescue, you know, they always say this thing, they go, what's the first priority of rescue? And what is it, Brad? What's the first priority of rescue? D- don't endanger other lives to save uh people in a situation right exactly it's it's it, it's safe that's, that's, that's the, at least that's the textbook answer you know that's yeah. what we learn in every course we ever take to be first responders 
Don't endanger yourself or others to rescue someone. However, in this case, the rescuer at that point is the person that placed those people in that situation. So, right. So all rules are aside. Mm -hmm. And over the course of our river rescue experience, you know, because we guided class five and serious rivers all the time, yeah. stuff happens, you know. And over the course of time, uh, the what we really learned is to be super intimate with each other in our communications and also in the river itself. You know, we were swimming stuff regularly that people would raft, you know, and playing and, and having this intimacy. And so, you know, there have been times where I've come upon a situation, come down on upon another group on the river and their boat's out in the middle of the wickedness, you know, and it's wrapped around a rock and nobody's left on it. It's just flopping out there and, you know, and just kind of run upstream, took my flip flops off, dove in and swam straight into that stuff, got on it. And, you know, deflated the thwarts and did, you know, did whatever I had to do to get their boat off by myself in a, in a much more willing situation to be part of the river. But it right. also, but, but that's because you know, you know, that water, you feel that water. And I've always said in mountaineering, because that's my context, uh, there's a, there's a special feeling when you kind of accept the unknown, when the unknown becomes the regular world in which you live freedom exposes itself and you stop being scared you don't live in this world of fear you live in the fact that i know i'm going to enter some situations that aren't always going to be great but i'm so intimate with the environment in which i'm working that that unknown is actually comfortable yeah it is it, it becomes more comfortable you know, and it's like that the longer you endeavor into any of these things where you're pressing yourself to your very edge and that that comes about like in Deadliest Catch, just simply sleep, you know, like knowing that I, I really can make it on three hours of sleep a night and I can work 26, you know, six hour shifts. But in climbing, you know, these extremes because you're coming up against your maximum heart rate. And you're trying to work at that level and keep your head clear at the level of the maximum amount of work you can possibly do. And it becomes drudgery to take a single step, but you're coming up against yourself in those moments. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's kind of like, uh, you know, people that, that have drank a lot in their life, you know, that have really come to the edge of consciousness a lot in their life. You know, if you punch them in the face and try to knock them out, it's my personal belief that those people are harder to knock out because they're better at being on the edge of consciousness. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, what's next for you? Where, where is your life journey taking you? Well, my life's journey couldn't, wouldn't be complete unless I told you that, you know, I got in a head on collision on my motorcycle by, with the drunk driver just about uh, 18 19 months ago yeah you and, were, you were almost uh, yeah. killed your son was on the bike with you is that correct yeah it kind of went crunch you know it had this loud crunching sound and uh my son fortunately was okay you know he he took the trauma of being you know being with his dad when his dad went through terrible thing and he he went flying but he hit me first and so he had you know he was right behind me and so it patted him but Mm -hmm. um thank goodness he was okay because boy it'd be hard to live with but yeah i just picked him up from school i was you know riding around a corner at 30 miles an hour right in my town 
when a drunk driver coming 30 miles an hour the other way just mm -hmm. failed to turn at the turn and just you know i had enough time to say what the and that was it but yeah um and coming back from that you know just uh you know i had to relearn to walk and everything and but uh you know now i'm pain-free <clears throat> disability free and um swimming half a mile a day if i can and and uh just doing my best eating well and getting ready for the next adventure which for me um on friday this week bill pruitt is going to fly in and meet with me and that's where we're looking at re-upping on the previous proposal we had done for a television show on everest this one featuring up the great mysteries of expeditions that uh were failed in the past and then recovering some of the frozen bodies on Everest and potentially some of the other peaks. And so, you know, Bill and I are going to start exploring that and look at developing a new series around that um, starting Friday. Excellent. Excellent. So your, your journey of adventure and connection to uh, the great outdoors continues. Well, yeah, it'll always be with me, you know, and, and it's funny how I don't need to mainline it anymore you know like i can get i can get a lot out of little things you know and i can just uh you know taking my kids on the, the most commonly run river in california the south fork of the american you know for me yeah we're camping by the cars we've got a freeway running by us where you know um but in the little moments on the water you know i find those little moments where i made that cut just right the boat surfs just right and it's like you're like oh the little joys, you know, I don't need to run the biggest rivers in the world. I don't need to be up there with you with your cameras all the way up under the death zone. But um, what I do need to do is keep the uh, the adventure and creativity going in my life. Same, you know. Is there one moment in your career, whether it's you know, filming and producing or on the river and, and rafting and taking care of people? through these adventures, is there one moment that sticks out? You know, it's funny. I, I kind of opened my mind while you were talking to me to let what would pop in, pop in, you know, it being interested in myself, what would, you know? And uh, what popped in was this experience I had late in my Grand Canyon guiding career where a woman had come on the trip that was, um, she was afraid of heights. You know, people say that a lot in our sport. I don't know if you could do that. I'm afraid of heights. Well, you know, we are all afraid of heights. Let's face it. You know, some of us go up against that fear, and but it doesn't make us any less afraid of that height. But there are some people who are truly afraid of heights. Like if there's a two-foot, you know, perfectly rectangular boulder for people to step over, they'll get down on their knees to climb over it. And so that's how this woman was. And it was at the end of my Grand Canyon experience guiding when I just uh, took this woman by the hand and led her everywhere for 12 straight days and took her on all the hikes, no matter how terrifying, because a lot of those Grand Canyon hikes are, there's exposed moments in them, you know, you're hiking in the canyons. And, and so she went on all the hikes, went to do all the hikes. And I just, uh, I just, I'd learned it was like the culmination of my guiding career. You know, I just learned to be that patient. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. cool. That's cool. So it became, became about the relationships and the people, not just kind of you, your ego and, and pushing to be as, as badass as you can be, but, but taking care of people. Yeah. You know, this, the river guides, we kind of, <clears throat> 
does that go on with river guiding, you know, and guides like yourself, you know, they're people that really genuinely care about people. Mm-hmm. You know, you cannot be self-centered and be a river guide. Mm-hmm. And so for me, the great lesson in all of that from the 18 year old best river guide in the whole world guide to the humble, you know, 58 year old who knows that a class three rapid can kick his ass pretty hard. Um, yeah, there's a big journey. And I think part of that is just the journey of self-exploration that each of us are going on in our, our different ways, you know? That's cool. That's cool. Well, Doug, I want to thank you for joining us today. And, and uh, it's always just great to talk and, and learn about everyone's journey. So uh, huge thanks and look forward to catching up sometime soon. Great. And when I do, we'll be talking about Everest and I'll be, I'll be asking you to do something. You're going to have to actually think about whether you want to do it. (laughs) See you soon, man.